excited to speak with Eric Lotke. He is an author, lawyer, criminal justice, and union activist. And we will be discussing his new book, Union Made by Hardball Press. Eric, how are you doing? Life is good. How are you? Great, great. Uh, finished reading your book last night, and I'm very excited to dive into that. But before we talk about your book, could you talk a little bit about your backgrounds and how you got interested in labor? That's an interesting question, almost a hard question. I started out union skeptical, almost anti-union. Not hostile, not hostile, but I grew up in a family with professional parents who thought unions were kind of old and obsolete, maybe even corrupt, and they would come home complaining maybe about something that happened at the office and they wanted help with something, but the person who might help says, no, it's five, it's 501, I'm clocked out. And so I kind of grew up with, with union, anti-union or union skeptical attitude. And then the first decade of my career, I was doing advocacy in the criminal legal system. And we were looking for reforms in the police department and the fraternal order was against us. We were trying to close a prisoner at jail and the corrections officers were against us. And we can understand why that might be. And it's really complicated. But nonetheless, I found myself more often adverse to unions than with unions on top of the, the let's call it childhood skepticism. Then I spent five years as the research director of a think tank. Campaign for America's Future, kitchen table economics, healthcare, college costs, manufacturing, a lot of attention on manufacturing. And somewhere in there, I came to, I came to feel like the bumper sticker, unions, the folks who brought you the weekend. And I really came to appreciate unions as the folks who brought you the weekend. The countries go in the wrong direction, still go in the wrong direction. And you win this election and still go in the wrong direction. And I and, and so the, the aha moment was the reason it's going the wrong direction. What we need is working people working together. Wait, that's what unions do. So I quit my research director think tank job with the, with the window office on K Street and became a, uh, and became a staff researcher at, at SEIU, Justice for Janitors. And I spent the next five years at, at SEIU working Justice for Janitors. And then I left actually for the, uh, associated with the release of my previous novel. And then I came back and started working at the National Education Association, which is where I now work. So I've been, I've been a union guy for 10 years by now. I'm union, I'm all the way. Uh, could you talk about any campaigns that you've worked on uh, for the Justice for Janitors campaign with SEIU and also of any campaigns that uh, you may be looking at for the National Education Association? There was a Justice for Janitors campaign in Houston, Texas that marked me a lot. And a lot of it is, and, and parts of it are reflected in this book, In Union Made. There were tactical things, civil disobedience, um, what do you call it, blocking traffic, causing trouble, getting attention to the cause, a lot, a lot of community organizing. It's not just the janitors themselves. How does the faith community feel about it? How, where, where are the building owners on this? Where are the possible customers, clients, people who might have to pay more money if the janitors are making more? So a lot of robust community organizing and getting more people involved, both in the justice of the campaign and understanding why traffic was being blocked. And the thing that, that one of the things that really, stuck with me at the end was 
this was great. There's a lot of campaign with a lot of people on the ground working incredibly hard, a lot of creative intelligence, all the SEIU investing resources, local people investing resources, big deal. And then in the end, the janitors won and they got a win and we celebrate and that's awesome. And the win that they got was something like 35 cents an hour. And so, yay, your, you know, your salary went up from, you know, 750 an hour to 785 an hour. And that's really good. And that's really good for somebody who's making 750 an hour and 35 cents. Let us not, let, let us not disdain what 35 cents means at the bottom of the pay scale. But I was like, wow, that was a whole lot. And in the end, they're still freaking poor. They still don't have enough money. They still can barely pay the rent. It's still hard for them to send their kids to college. And this was a win. This was as good as it gets. We, got, we, we have a long way still to go. Yes, indeed. And it's works like Union Made that I think can help lift up the consciousness of a lot of Americans who may not even understand what a union is or what the struggle is for trying to form a union. Uh, could you talk a little bit just on the, the 50,000 foot level? What is the story of Union Made? So on the one hand, we've got a romance. It's a classic romance. We've got a boy meets girl. Except that, except there's a trick. Of course, there has to be a trick. She is a union organizer, and he works for the ownership of the company that she's trying to organize. So, of course, they are naturally adverse. But you know, but 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 over time, you know, he but she kind of wins him over. First, she wins him over because she's fabulous. She's brilliant. She's personable. She's creative and clever in all of these ways. But at the same time, he has access to the company books and he starts to realize, wait, we could afford to give them a raise. We could probably give them a, even more of a raise than they're asking for. And those, those illegal union busting tactics that are going on that I see on TV that you're not supposed to do, wait a minute, look, look, look in the books, we're paying for those. That's not quite the way it should be. And so on the one hand, in the big picture sense, he's kind of coming around to her side. And in the smaller picture sense, well, you know, maybe she'll at least have lunch with me. And 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 and, and then and then we and then we have a romance after that. But of course, not until after the contract is signed. So I love the hero's journey that Nathan Hawley goes through as he moves from being lonely with his positive growth curves as an accountant <laughs> and just he's going through the monotony and banality and isolation of just being, you know, with his numbers, with his math and the dialectic with with Catherine Campbell, uh, union organizer, uh, is, is just this beautiful interplay and he grows in class consciousness as he goes through a lot of different, a lot of different challenges, you could say, but those challenges are small in comparison with the people who are organizing the union drive. And you bring up a lot of social issues as well, but one thing that is so timely right now is this question of a minimum wage. And you focus in the book on the people at, uh, at this grocery store wants to simply raise their their wages from uh, to set to 7.85 an hour. The, right now the federal minimum wage is 7.25 an hour. 
And there's even a comment, they remember when a job paid a living wage and raises came annually. And so why did you want to focus on the, the minimum wage? It's interesting, and I'm glad you appreciate the dialectic, as, as you say, between the two of them. In some ways, that's conversation between me and the old me, who's, who's getting convinced. And I'm glad that you appreciated it, that it felt like dialogue, not feeling like a lecture. Um, but, but, but there's a lot, there, there's nonfiction going on in, in, in the background in, in those scenes. The, um, and, and, and one thing that, one of the questions about union organizing or about raising wages in general is, well, won't that raise prices? And won't that be bad for everybody? And what if we increase the minimum wage? Wouldn't other things become out of reach or wouldn't people lose work or something like that? And so there's talk about how, in some ways, unions take the wages out of competition. If all the bricklayers get a raise, then all of the bricklaying companies can raise their can raise their prices a little bit, and no bricklaying company got hurt. And so, in a certain sense, my industry, my company—if we can give our people a raise, yeah—but you're not getting the other people to get to, the other company needs to give a raise too, and that's all true. And as she says, we'll get them next. Um, and in the meanwhile, if you want us help to raise, raise the minimum wage for everybody, that would be okay with us too. In fact, tell you what, help us raise the entire minimum wage to $15 an hour. No, no accident that I chose 15. And, and, and if you'll help us raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour, we'll give you some slack on this, on, on this particular wage campaign. And it truly is uh, the rising tide lifts all boats. So if uh, you're making 15 now, if, if the 15 is a floor, your salary is probably going to go up or your hourly is going to go up as well. Right. The person, if somebody's making eight, if somebody's making eight bucks an hour, somebody else is making $9 an hour. And so if the, if the bottom comes up, then other, then other people come up and that's just plain, just plain good for everybody. So as uh Nathan is in his kind of in the woods right now and he, he's kind of lost alone. He casually makes this observation, CEOs makes 200 times as much as the line staff and the line staff being the people on the floor. So 200 times as much. And he says, that's not bad in the industry, over 300 times is customary. And he's, he's saying this as he nonchalantly is eating some carrots with hummus and uh, do you want to just comment a little bit about the absurdity of that pay difference? <laughs> well, it's funny, and we've come to see it as normal. And I don't remember the data offhand back in my think tank think tank days. I did, but in let's call it the you know 60s, 70s, back you know back when things were a little bit better, 50s. I don't I don't know uh, offhand. You know, CEOs were always paid better, right? Um, but the but the factors were 20 times and 30 times, not 200 times and 300 times, and they were taxed higher. And and why do I and and then if they're taxed higher, then maybe I might as well not pay myself that much, and I can take the money instead of sending it to me at my 80% tax rate. And what if I spent it in the company? What if I invested it in research and development? What if I invested it in my workforce? What if we promoted people up the up the chains? From, from entry to the next to, to intermediate. And, and the idea of building the company was, was integral. And now, you know, the, the, the CEOs make 200, 300 times as much and the people are basically disposable widgets. 
and we'll hire somebody who has this skill. And when we use them up or burn them out or whatever it is, we'll hire somebody else who has that skill. Or if we need a different skill, we won't skill up this person. We'll just lay them off and hire somebody else. This is, it's a, it's a different, different attitude in, in business. And the whole system is designed to look at short-term profits, how much you can create in the short term for shareholders, which all of the executive board and the CEOs are, have those stocks that they want to inflate. And if the assets strip it, load the company with debt, they're gone in a few years with their pay package and the, the, the company's left in shambles. Um, something that you also get into with uh, Nathan as an accountant, as he's looking over pack shops, uh, you know, greatest corporate risk. And he's like, it's not unions. It's actually the exchange rate between the dollar and the yuan of China and the gross margin are 30% overall profits in the eight to 10% range. But the actual, the risk, the greatest risk isn't the unions. It's the fact that the supply chains are so stretched all the way to China. If you really care about risk, you want to bring the supply chains home for a lot of this. And that, I thought that was a really, really great kind of way to look at it that you bring in that idea. Thank you. Before, before writing those scenes, I was reading and downloading the, the, the corporate documents, the SEC filings, the 10Ks for Walmart and, 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 and the big publicly traded corporations um, to see to get a sense of what, what the margins were. There's something else that happens in those scenes that, that and thank you for, for bringing that up. People talk about, well, if the, if wages go up, if the cost of labor goes up, then, then it has to get passed on to consumers and so forth. And it turns out that in many cases, the cost of labor is not a big part of the, uh, of the overhead structure of the corporation. And especially in manufacturing, there's a little scene where Catherine, who's our labor organizer, is talking about her father who used to work in manufacturing. And, 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 and they talk about the cost, you know, why do the companies move overseas? And of course there's tax shenanigans and there's subsidies overseas. And there's all, there's all kinds of, sharp pencil stuff going on for why it is that the companies move. And there's two simultaneous pieces of dialogue going on. One is modern manufacturing is much more automated and people lose the jobs because of automation. And simultaneously, the companies move overseas because of cheaper labor. And it's like, wait, it can't be both of those actually, because modern manufacturing is a lot more automated and less labor intensive. So it turns out that the cost of labor isn't the big deal. Something else is going on. And what's going on is all of that sharp pencil stuff and where are the subsidies and who gets the money and how do they choose to spend it and all the rest of it. Give the workers a raise for crying out loud. Give it to them in the steel plant, give it to them here. And you alluded to it just to be clear. So the company in in the book, in Union Made, in my novel, the company, it's called Pack Shop. And it's a big retail train chain thing, think, think Walmart, Target, something like that. That's, that's who it looks like. So you really open the hood to why unions, just why there are unions, why you need unions. And you also show the resistance, the political, the financial, you bring in prisons, you bring in these systematic obstacles of injustice that are preventing this solidarity um, within the workplace and outside the workplace. And I, I love it how you go through the union campaign. And I, I really encourage everyone to, to get this book. 
if, um, if for nothing other than the fact that they can learn more about the process and really be able to form greater solidarity with other people who are in unions and to form their own unions and possibly join unions. But you, all, you also talk about the fact that when you're in a union, you're, all, you're making the work more functional and efficient. It's not just your protections, but you're giving yourself a voice as a part of the company. And you're able to talk to the boss about how to better organize your shipping because you're doing it every day. And if you're the person doing every day, you probably know best how to do it. And if you're just given that voice and that platform, you can actually make the business more profitable than if it's just this top-down rigorous way of doing things. Especially at the most micro level. Manufacturing for a minute, how do the goods move around the plant? Ask the people who are moving the goods around the plant how it can be done more efficiently or what tool would be better there or how, would, how do we reduce the noise? The people putting up with the noise all day, I'll bet they have ideas for how to reduce the noise, how to make it safer. It's a sh how, how could management possibly not want to want to know that? Nowadays, I'm working, I'm at the National Education Association, I'm working with educators, working with teachers, and you want to know how to make things better in the classroom? You need to ask the teachers. You need to ask the people who are there. You want to know how to, how to make things work better in the kitchen? Ask the food service workers. And it just seems like, you know, I've been management before, and if I were management, that's, of course, that's where I would begin. But they don't they don't start that way. And so the unions are are the the way that the workers can come together and say, well, we think it should be like this and do it safely. So one of the direct actions that Catherine does is she brings the press down and a, a very wealthy uh, commercial Avenue Street in uh, Richmond. And they start going to a high end uh, luxury good fashion store. And they say, this is a standard dress from Hugo Boss selling inside for $415, equivalent to a mere 52 hours of work at pack shop wages. And it just, it just shows this inequality that is, you, you can't survive as a coherent country with these inequalities, it, where it takes 52 hours for this person and it takes you know two seconds of labor for this other person or even less. Right. Thanks. I, I, I like that scene. And that and that was research. You know, I went I went to the stores, I went to the internets and I looked up, well, what is it? What is a fancy man, men's business shoe work? It's four hundred dollars for this. And look, it's thirty dollars for the cashmere socks. And of course, let's let's wonder. Let, let's open up a different door that I won't even daydream of that that shoe that's costing $400 or the sock that's costing $30 what are its supply chains and what did its labor get cost and where did it come from and who got paid how much and what's the profit margin there's there's stuff going on here that's not really related to what workers are being paid or what they the, what, what what they could be paid and i guess i i really just i always come back to you know one worker alone is only complaining and all the workers together can shut down the factory and there's just no other way to get the boss to change. So as the story goes around, Catherine hits some obstacles and she starts having self-doubt and she remembers a failed union campaign where a lot of people got fired. And have you experienced that? Have you seen that? Uh, what, where did you draw that from? I mean. Yeah, I would love to hear your thoughts. That that's that's from walking around the office and talking to people who've done this long, long longer than I have. It's not as if I've only ever been involved in, in been involved in wins, but 
what she does is what's really important. She goes back to the workers. And so she's thinking like a skilled professional union organizer, tactically, what should we do next? Tactically, how can we do, how, what can I do? And then she self-corrects and says, no, wait a minute, I'm not bearing the risk. I'm not the person who's gonna be fired. I need to go back to those folks and ask what they, first of all, what they think are good ideas, back to the bottom up strategies and what risks they are willing to take because it's, it's that person who got fired and that person who got put, put onto the graveyard shift and I'm not at that risk. And so she does what the good, good organizer does, goes back to the folks and forgive me, now I wanna to rewind to a question you asked just a minute ago about, about the racism and, and, and what's going on racially in America. And what we want, what many of us want is, is the class-oriented class struggle where the workers are all in it together. It's not the black workers like this, the Hispanic workers like that, the white workers like that, all going against each other fighting for something. How about if it's all of the workers together? And in the story, it is absolutely no accident. The rainbow coalition of all of the races that are working at the retail outlet, and they're black people, and there's and 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 there's Pakistani people, and and who's getting fired, and 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 more women than men, plenty of men too, some white guys, but but fundamentally built to reflect what it looks like, not just in America, but in that part of the American economy, which is incredibly multiculturally diverse. There's languages going on; they have kids at home, and yet somehow they all need to work together to get a raise, which is good for all of them. And that's, and, and that, that is built into this, in, in, into the fabric of the characters and the story that the working people are working together. And I love that moment where Catherine has that self doubt and she's like, I, I can't get out in front of this as a union organizer. I, because ultimately it's, it's going to be their union. They're going to be the ones who need to lead it. And she starts asking Alina, uh, about maybe we should pull back. And Alina's like, if you give up the fight to live, that's when you start to die. And I, I love that, that line. And then this other idea that's brought about is this golden rule for the workplace or the 11th commandment. <laughs> Don't treat your employer better than your employer treats you. And so obviously go above and beyond because we want to do good work. We want to make uh, we we want to create quality things. We want to come to work motivated. But if the, if the employment isn't giving you any respect or dignity, then how can you give them respect back? I, I really love that. Thank you. I, I like that too. The first moment is interesting. That came to me from prison. That was somebody who was fighting his, his real life term, life without parole. And, and it was him who said something along the lines of the moment you give up the fight to live, that's when you start to die or exactly how I said, how he said it to me, how, how she said it there. But that, that, that line is real, it's sincere. I learned that from somebody who was spending way too much time in custody. And now I've forgotten the second part of your question. What was it? It was- um, Yeah, the, the, oh, golden the golden rule. Yeah, the golden rule, that was my own invention. Thank you for quoting me on it. I want that one to stick. If nothing else comes out of this interview, interview, please somebody remember what I call the golden rule of the workplace. And we all grew up with the golden rule, do unto others as you want them to do unto you. And at one point I was in a, in a job where I was doing unto my, into the employer the way I, would, I was treating my employer well because I'm a nice guy and I'm responsible and I'm treating my employer well and realizing my employer wouldn't do that back at me. My employer wouldn't do me favors like this. 
And so my sour in need of a union um, answer was treat your employer no better than your employer treats you. Golden rule of the workplace. It's sour. It's negative. What I really want is to go back to the good old fashioned golden rule. But until, until our employers treat us better, we don't have to treat them better than they're treating us. Absolutely. So, somebody reaches that. Yes. Thank you. And if they have no loyalty and they're, they just want a bunch of mercenaries, then, well, we'll organize and take over. <laughs> right. If you forget to st stamp your time clock, you think they're going to do you a favor? They're not. Yeah. And uh, I guess one final thing just on, on the, the, the book itself. I, I love the line too where, and we, we've already touched upon it a little bit, but where Catherine's telling everyone about this union drive and ultimately she says the union is yours it's your partnership and your tool it works because you do but it's not a soda machine and so that can be applied to unions it can be applied to democracy being a citizen everything else but i i think it's more important in unions than anything else and trying to get people to understand that people can't you can't rely on outside organizers because ultimately you have to create the the culture and dynamics within the workplace with your coworkers to, to really achieve power where you can withhold labor and get concessions. Right, the union is not a soda machine. I learned that from, from, some, from some organizers in St. Paul, Minnesota, and Catherine credits them in, in the book. Soda machine, you put the money in, you get your soda out, and you can complain if it doesn't work. The union, you put your money in, you pay your dues. That doesn't mean you get a raise out. It's more like a gym. You pay your dues membership, now you can go get in shape, but it's up to you to use the treadmill and lift, and lift the weights. And you can't complain at the end of the month if you've been paying your union dues, paying your, paying your gym fees, and you're not in better shape. The union is not a soda machine. The union is, is nothing but the tool for all of the people who together make the union. And the union is as strong as all of them working together. So I wanna focus on your craft as a writer and wanna learn a little bit about what your process is as you write, because you also have a day job, uh, you have family and, and so what is, what is your process to write? So that, that, that's interesting. And, and it's, it's, it's funny, in the author community I've kind of learned there's two of us. There's, we, we go by planners and pantsters. And the planners map it all out with an outline from beginning to end, and the pantsters work it out by the seat of their pants. And I'm a pantster. I know where I want to go, and I have a rough idea of how I will get there. And after I write chapter one, two, three, I can map out four, five, six. And once I write four, five, six, I can figure out where seven, eight are going to go. And then now I can see all the way to 12. And, and so I'm working it out like that. Some people also say, I do it every day, I, every morning at 6 a.m. or every night at whatever, or every, and they have a schedule. I'm not like that. Again, full-time job, two kids. And if the job is on deadlines, I don't have a lot of time to write. And if the kids need attention, if there's a travel soccer tournament, then I don't have a lot of time to write. And so I write opportunistically. And so I write wherever I can, whenever I can. And often it's early in the morning or late at night or on the weekends or whatever it might be but I write opportunistically and I have an idea of where I'm trying to go. I know that the campaign's going to win. I know that they're going to get together. You know, I, there's certain things that I know that are going to happen, but I don't know exactly what all of the details are. And I work that out as I go. 
And some people say, well, the book feels very real and it is very real. And I want it to be very real and to feel to the reader like they could happen that way. And I think that's one reason is because now I'm in chapter seven and I have to figure out what chapter eight would look like. And well, if I were the organizer, what would I do? And if I were working in the shop under those circumstances, what would I do? And if I've mapped it out in advance, I don't know exactly the quotation of what was said the chapter before. So I won't know exactly how she would respond to the boss in the chapter next. And so I keep it real by, 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 going, by going in that direction along those lines. And your character development is, is great as well. And you already mentioned this, that you're kind of having a conversation with your former self between the two protagonists. And what do you find is the most difficult thing about writing about characters from the opposite sex or different cultural backgrounds? That's actually an interesting question. And forgive me if, if you'll let me go off, off, off stream for a minute. Th this book, he's an accountant, he has a desk job. So he's kind of like me. She's a union organizer. She's working for a union. So she's kind of like me. They, I, I, it's not as if I've never had a low, uh, an entry level, low wage job or never, ne never lived paycheck to paycheck. So all of those characters are just like me. So in some ways I'm part of all of them. My previous novel called Making Mana, Making Mana, where the main character is a 14 year old girl subject to child sex, who's being sexually abused by her father. The main character is an African-American drug dealer. And, and so the, the, the other characters look nothing like me at all. And so where do they come from? And in some ways it's all, it's, it's all just, what's the old, is it Gertrude, Gertrude, Gertrude Stein? I am large, I contain multiples multitudes and 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 so you know it's like we're all of these the people who i've met hanging out in the dc jail working in the streets working on on either the janitor campaigns and again nowadays it's more educate ed, education i was in those red for ed teacher strikes in arizona i was marching with thousands of educators talking with them about the frustrations of the curriculum being being defined to them and the difficulty of paying for, for, for their own needs on the salaries that they have. And all of that goes into the, the mix. And then out of that comes, comes characters that I'm glad that you think that they, that, that they feel real. Um, I want them to feel real. And, and, and he's an accountant. It's a boring, tedious job. A lot of the, a lot of us have them, right? And yet we need it. We need it to be meaningful for him. And it's mine's meaningful for me. So what advice can you give to aspiring writers to avoid common traps and pitfalls as they go down the artistic path of being a writer? It, I guess it all starts with your story. What's your story? What story do you want to tell? And, and why do you want to tell it? And then if you're motivated and you want it, you want to tell the story, then, then you know, go for it and find the time and 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 do nano remo the november write a novel that month if that if that helps you or find whatever time works for you you're not on deadline it's personal have 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 fun with it enjoy it if you have a story in you that wants to get out go go for it go 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 and help help it get out and if it doesn't want to come out that's okay maybe it'll come out next year So changing the topic again, looking at labor, art, and media, there is a huge 
gaping hole in corporate media and in, in corporate art and corporate music, not having labor there, even though virtually all of us are working class at some level. Uh, could you talk a little bit about the current state zeitgeist and where you may be optimistic uh, despite all the carnage of uh, the lack of labor reporting and labor media? Yeah, it's funny. I, sometimes I get optimistic and then I say, shut up, read the newspaper. Are you kidding me? I was really optimistic with those red for ed teacher strikes. They, they were really cool. And that was, that really was, it was idealism of, of, of people coming together and, and, and people listening the, the, and, 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 and the states and cities saying, yeah, we do need to pay them better. And that was nothing but mass mobilization of the educators and the communities whose kids go to school and rely on the schools. So that was really cool and that makes me sunny. And then coronavirus changes everything. And I like to think that that will change and that the coronas will eventually go, go you know, be, become better managed. And in the end, we still have the same situation. The working people aren't getting their fair share. The corporate plutocrats are getting too much. And there's a tool for the people to work together and, and their unions. And, and, the, and so I like to think that more of this will come. Will the corporate media report on it fairly? No, probably not. Is the alternative press growing and developing and, and, and finding its own legs and getting its own readership? Yes, it will. Do I myself subscribe to some of those online services and I pay them money that, that I could probably get away with not paying them? Yes, I do. And, and there's getting to be more and more of that. And so sometimes I get optimistic. I'm making myself optimistic now and I hate to end on a negative. And I say, no, 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 wake up. It's really bad out there. And it is really bad out there. Right. And nobody has enough money and and everybody's struggling and and the luxury of time to build a union or to work together is something that everybody doesn't have. But at the same time, we all know where we want to go and we're going to have we're going to find a way to get there. And it's always important to remember this stat that I heard earlier this week, 745 people earned one point three trillion dollars in the last 12 months. So we're talking about $1.9 trillion stimulus. If we just remove that $1.3 trillion of profit, that's two thirds paid for, and all those people will still be you know, billionaires, multi, multi-millionaires, hundreds of millions of dollars. And it, it's just so absurd. And, and it, it's, that's where I think the, the art and the writing and the storytelling is so important to lift up the consciousness of people to show that they can fight and they can win. And uh, as we start to close out, could you talk a little bit about Hardball Press and uh, working with Tim Sheard? So Hardball Press is a small independent publishing company. By the way, it is probably not a coincidence that I couldn't find a, 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 I couldn't find a publisher for this really pretty good, perfectly good story in the mainstream big house presses. That's no accident. And, and, and Tim Sheard runs a small independent press. Tim was, a, his career was as a nurse and his, his old friends are, are, are dying right now with the Coronas and they're all struggling. And then he retired, if you will, if you can call it that, into this publishing company. And it's called Hardball Press and it's deliberately edgy and it's deliberately union oriented. 
And I think Tim wants to make a difference in the world. And maybe this goes back to your question, which is art will help to make a difference in the world and storytelling is part of it. And I've written plenty of nonfiction and you can Google me and I worked for a think tank and I write plenty of nonfiction, but what moves people is story and music and, and other kinds of art. And so that's why Union Made is intended to, this is intended to show what unions do and why they're important. And you can recommend it to your friends who would not read a nonfiction book or not look at the data, but they can read the story and enjoy it and then come to appreciate just how little these people are made, just how much money would be available to pay them better and what a difference it would make and how to get there. So as we're closing out, uh, what are your plans for 2021? 2021, I have to live that long? It's, uh, forgive me, you know, it is, I am so blinkered. It is all coronavirus. I hope to get vaccinated. I hope, I, you know, I, I hope to live that long. My day job is with the National Education Association. I really want to get back to education. I want to get back, the, the tests are crazy. I want to get rid of the tests. I want the educators paid better. I'm always at the bottom end of the scale. The teachers need better pay, but the janitors need better pay and the bus drivers need better pay. And don't tell me there isn't money to be had in this country. There's so much freaking wealth in this country. We just need to go and get it. And, and as you were saying, the tiny little fractions from people with all of those billions and all of those hundreds of millions would go a long way to making things a lot better for a lot of people. So I'm gonna get back into that. That's my, again, that's my day job. And, and Union Made is, 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 is storytelling. And I like to think that I'll have opportunities like this to share the story with other people. And I hope that some people will read the book and enjoy it. By the way, the cover art by a woman who lives in our neighborhood, who, uh, you know, starving artist who earns her living walking dogs. And I said, Lara, have you ever done a book, a cover before? So, um, so it's all just, there's so much talent in this world. We just need to, we, we, we just need to release it. Well, I love the story. I love the book and the hero's journey. And it really does provide this magnifying glass on the blood, sweat, tears, courage, and ultimately love and solidarity that goes into organizing a union drive. Eric Lotke, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me.